The church matters, even though it's been a monster at times. Maybe that's the subtext of what we're focusing on for the back half of considering what it means to dance in the, to the music of the gospel. We want to consider one idea from the passage we're going to look at today that speaks of what does it mean for you to believe that the church matters. And I'm going to, Craig's helped me to put together a mashup of three things, three moments that kind of encapsulate where we're going today about how to think about what is the church? What is your place in it? So watch this. first half of the book of Ephesians is out to persuade us of the idea that to believe Jesus is to receive a kind of inward music that we are enamored by, that we are beholden to, that we are blessed by, and it gives us rest, and it helps us to see the beauty of all things. But like music that moves you, it's exactly what it does. That music is meant to move us in particular directions. It's meant to prompt something in us. And what you've seen in each of those three clips are, are folks that are realizing that that music is meant to move us, and yet we all feel a little bit like we have two left feet. The dance of the gospel is meant to move us in particular directions, but in order to become graceful in that dance, we need help from those who know it also. How do we become graceful in this dance of the gospel? How do we come to know what it means to hear what he has done for us and then to live out lives in particular ways with particular elegance that reflect the grace that's been shown us? That's that's our burden today from the passage that we're going to look at. How do we become graceful in that dance? Just as each of those characters were learning to become graceful in the dance that was before them. I think it rests upon understanding three things. 
understanding the unity that we have in God and the diversity that we have in the God's gifts that he gives us such that it leads to a maturity in God's people. The unity of who God is and what that does to us, the diversity of God's gifts and what those do in us and what they're for, that leads to a maturity among God's people. Not only does it mean to dance, what does it mean to dance with grace? That's where we're going. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're actually going to back up a little bit to where we were last week and take a running start. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4. I wonder if you might stand. We'll start there. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the graceful word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. How do we become graceful in the dance? We first have to grapple with what follows from the unity that we have in God's nature. And again, this should sound familiar because it's where we ended last week and we didn't give it enough time. We felt like we needed to give it a little bit more time. What does it mean to say that we are one body and one spirit if you're a believer in him? It means this. What you share in common is that you have come together by virtue of the fact that you have been persuaded of something deeply within and acted upon from something outside of you, you didn't just sort of come up with it. It wasn't sort of the, the product of your own reflection or philosophizing on the truth. It was that you were acted upon by the Spirit to be persuaded and awakened to something that was true. Awakened to a call that God has made of you, that you were in need of Him. That what you had in and of yourself was not enough to make you fully his, but that he had to act on your behalf through his son 
that you might be forgiven of all your sin and reconciled to God and adopted into his family and earmarked for the inheritance that will not fail and will not fade. That's what the Spirit has done if you're in him. You share that in common. When it says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, it means the Spirit has acted upon you to persuade of you that Jesus was more than just wise. He was more than just good. He's one that you could properly think of as Lord. That if he were to walk into this room and to be in your presence, the most natural response you would have would be to bow. To have a certain awe and reverence for who he is in his love. One Lord that you are then persuaded of by faith such that you would readily and without apprehension identify with him in baptism. To believe that you would need his cleansing blood to make you his. And that you are the beneficiary of his grace by what he has done. That's one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And all of that proceeds from the work of one idea and that is God the Father. The one who has given us the Son and sent to us his Spirit that we might believe that he is Lord of all things. These are the things, if you are part of his church, that you all share in common. And what follows from the knowledge of that unity that you have in what is true of the Trinity that binds you together. And it means you all have a collective story. And what is true of that story is that you all have a common need. You are humbled by that need. So anything else that you might divide over, January 6th, the vaccines, the geopolitical decisions of our country, the way in which things are spent, all of those things that you might have a proper quibble over in any number of things, I am here to tell you, that what is true of your story trumps everything else that you might be divided over. You are humbled in that truth because you have a common need before him. That binds you together. Not only are you humbled by that, not only do you share that in common, you have a common rescuer. Whatever else you might be good at, whatever other things that you might like to do that give you great satisfaction, that help you to feel the goodness of all things, I'm here to tell you, it is still insufficient to your deepest need, and Jesus has come for you in that. You have a common need, you have a common help, and if God is over all and for all and through all and in all, then all of us, if Christ is your story, then you are in a common accountability to him in all things. And with that common accountability to him, you also have a common responsibility to one another. And if I could could shave off one slice of what that common responsibility is to one another, I'll I'll reference what I said last week, referencing that that wonderful little song from Drew Holcomb I mentioned last week called Dragons, in which he he tells you all sorts of things that he might have heard from his grandfather and had a vision of his late grandfather's voice when when he goes, go slay all those dragons that stand in your way. And we talked about what is a dragon, and a a dragon is that thing that haunts you and taunts you and, and keeps you from living in the way that you might rest by faith and walk by faith in him. And that the church, in too many ways, my fault included in that way, is to, is to help encourage in you a mentality that you're just a crowd of people that are in the same room, and you don't know anybody else, and you're just here 
facing the same guy, flapping his gums, but you don't know any about one another's burdens. And we argued last week that the way from, from becoming a crowd into a community is through the path of confession. Of arguing that you must learn to disclose those deepest things that haunt you and taunt you to one another, to tell somebody what those dragons are. That's one way to acknowledging our common accountability to who the Lord is, because we all share a common story, because we are all living under the goodness and mercy of that unity of community in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what binds us together. But the path from being a crowd to a community, while it is marked by confession of what what we're afraid of and what sins we carry, that's just one element of what it means to be bound together in unity by the unity that is in God. And there's a line from C.S. Lewis that I didn't get to share last week that I'm going to share with you this week that I think helps us get to the the essence of what it means to, to live under that unity. And he said this, In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, not a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern to take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. That's what the rest of the burden of this sermon is all about. What does it mean for us to take part in that dance? What does it mean to take part in that dance such that all of our happiness for the rest of our days depends on taking part in that dance? That's why I want to get to the second thing that speaks to how we become graceful dancers. We have to reckon with the unity that we share in the unity that is in God. But we also have to grapple with the diversity of gifts that God has given his church. If you are just tuning in, let me retrace our steps in 30 seconds or less. What do I mean? What does it mean to live by the dance of God? It is this, what you heard last week in chapter 4, verse 1. The dance of God is this, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Not to demonstrate perfection, not to win God's affection, but to believe that you already have won it in Jesus. That you already have an identity that you did not earn, that you did not merit, that you do not deserve, but one that has been given you. An identity that says you are forgiven, that you are reconciled, that you belong to him, Full stop. No qualifications. No prerequisites. And to live out of that idea. To live on the basis of that identity. And so we summarized it all very nicely in the words of a 15th century priest named Francis de Sales who said this, let us be what we are and let us be it well. Why? To do honor to the master whose work we are. That's the dance. That's the dance that you are invited to on the dance floor. Now, that's the unity that we're all called to. But there in verse 4, you heard the letter, the conjunction, but. Always circle the but. There's a conjunction in there for a reason. Why that? Why didn't he just sort of continue on? Because what he's saying is this. Yes, 
there are a host of things that we all share in common, and yet we are not identical. There is something unique about each one of us, namely that each one of us has been given a gift from God by virtue of belonging to him through Christ. It's not that some of you have gifts and the rest of you rabble, just sort of watch on and stand in amazement and awe. Everybody, to each, meaning all, has been given a gift according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's what's true of all of us. And where he begins to line that out is what he says there in verse 11. Gifts that birth a church. What are those gifts that he begins to give? You heard about it in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Okay, that's a list. That's a short list. And you can imagine why he starts with those roles in this list. Because what is the gospel? What is the What is this word that Jesus has come to give and to die for that we might understand? To borrow a word from another pastor, it's not advice. Oh, you ought to this. You ought to do this. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not a set of skills that you develop. The gospel is not of hoops that you jump through in order to show God, I'm really in this. I really mean it. And God says, oh, I'm impressed with you. You're in. That's not the gospel. The gospel is news. The gospel is declaring to you what he has done, quite in spite of anything that you already have done and never could do. It's news. And that's why it makes sense that some of these gifts that he gives, that that Paul begins to rattle off here, are the things that first birth a church. To declare, to disclose, to explain, to nurture that understanding. Yes, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Apostles, one who was sent, and it was sort of an office, kind of, we, we defer to the early church here about what that apostleship was and how at a certain point the apostles were those who had been at least in the immediate presence of Jesus or who were in the first generation having heard about Jesus in that way. That's why Paul could think of himself as an apostle. Those gifts were given to disclose this truth that a church might be born, but Inasmuch as that is a very short list there in verse 11, it's not the only time that Paul begins to rattle off lists of gifts that are given to the church for the good of the church. This afternoon, 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, take your pick, and you'll see other lists. And both of those lists will reflect some of these that you just heard here in verse 11, but you will find other gifts that he's mentioned. And among those gifts that he will mention, you heard there in 1 Corinthians, or rather in Romans 12, gifts that are not just vocal and public, but gifts that are more private, behind the scenes, and yet just as crucial. Listen, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If service in our serving, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, just whatever you do, Make sure your gifts let love be genuine. Those aren't vocal. And in many respects, they're not public. But they're just as crucial. A diversity of gifts has been given to his people. Gifts of both going and declaring and explaining and nurturing, but also gifts of demonstrating in word and in deed. Everybody's got one. 
Everybody gets a gift from grace. It's not those that have one and those that don't. It's a matter of everybody's got some. Now, when I use the word gifts in an American Western mentality, we, we face a certain temptation. Because in this country and in any number of civilizations, when I say that you have a certain gift, it was yours and my temptation to reduce our identity to what gifts I might possess or have received. In other words, we think of ourselves as you are your gifts. Right? Everybody's got a talent. Why do people sink into such profound depression when they can, never, when they can no longer use the gifts that they're accustomed to using? Because they've come to so over-identify with what they have done with great satisfaction, even maybe sometimes with affirmation, that they feel like, I'm nothing now that I've lost that. That's why i got to pause here and let all of you Westerners in the room, I need to remind you about how we're to think of these gifts. You and I have to think of these gifts as Jesus thinks of these gifts that he has given you by the virtue of his grace. And it comes down with, first of all, how those gifts were even offered to you and how they were obtained. You heard back there, later in the passage, explaining this whole bizarre language of ascending and descending and Jesus conquering and all that. Let me listen to it once more time. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's, that's a reference that's an allusion to Psalm 68. You can go look that up later. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What is that all about there? You know, some people have read that over time and thought that's the part where Jesus goes to hell. He harrows hell. He brings everybody up. But when you look a little bit closer into the, the nomenclature that's up at work there, what that's referring to is what, one, what we just celebrated in the incarnation. Him descending in the flesh, becoming like one of us, and he walked among us. He tabernacled with us. And him ascending is what he did after he was done being resurrected, having died, and being dead for three days. That's the ascension. He descended as a human person. He ascended to the Father, to the right hand of the Father, that he might reign and rule over all things. So what does that mean? Jesus conquered death and now lives to reign. And as a consequence of his conquering death, he has now given you gifts. Why do I need to bring up that rather, uh, what is that woo-woo kind of language? Because if the gifts that you have been given have come from him in that way, then you must never think of those gifts that you possess as some sort of substitute for what he did for you. They are not your salvation. You do not win God's affections by using your gifts for his service. Oh, he takes great pleasure in them, and he gives you the beneficiary, the benefit of being able to take pleasure in them as you use them. But you're not saved by your gifts, you're saved by grace. Which means you have to think of your gifts in a particular way. Because sometimes in the way we think of our gifts, they're all about me. They're not all about you. And though you might find satisfaction and delight in them, you must always be careful of thinking of the reason you have them is because you were born in him. You do not have to win God's heart. 
It's already been proven to be won by what Jesus has done for you. That's how they were obtained. And that's what keeps you from thinking of yourself too highly in whatever gifts you might possess. Look, I'll be very honest with you. When I was in college, and my college pastor calls me into his office, and he says, you know, I'm in Austin at that time, and he says, okay, look, we would like to start a small group ministry among the college students. I would like you to go to Dallas on the church's dime, go to a conference. I want you to learn from them and bring back what you learned, right? And I guess he saw it on my face, but there was like a glimmer in my eye. And that's cool, right? Like, that's an affirmation. But he said to me in real time, without me saying a word, Patrick, here's your SAT word for the day, this is not for your self-aggrandizement. I am not here to give you the fathead. This is not about me trying to make you feel good about yourself, even though I know that that is naturally a way to feel good. What I'm sending you to do has a purpose, and it's bigger than you feeling good about yourself. And that's what you and I have to remember about what are these gifts for? They're not about you. They're for us. Everybody has something, whether it's public or vocal, whether it's mercy and private, whatever it might be, it's for us. And that's what gets me to the third part of this conversation. How do we become graceful in this dance? We have to reckon with the unity that is bound up with the unity in God. We have to reckon with the diversity of God gifts that he's given to each in this church, but always recognizing that both the unity of God and the diversity of God's gifts are all ordered toward one goal, maturity among God's people. Because when that maturity begins to manifest, it reflects the fact that God is the lover of our souls, what is that maturity? Paul kind of slivers off, slices off two, two dimensions of what that maturity looks like. One is that we are not like children anymore. That's why we did 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I did childish things. But when I became a man, I put away childish ways. Faith, hope, and love begin to emerge in me more naturally. It becomes more original and organic with my being. That's growing up. That's maturing in him. And you hear in this passage, what is this all ordered to? What are the gifts for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all manifest maturity and unity in the faith. And what is that maturity like? We're not easily swayed by every wind of doctrine, meaning not every, every idea that comes down the pike about what it might mean to follow God. We're not, we're not immediately hook, line, and sinker in everything that we hear. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, there was a rumor out there. The resurrection, it's already happened, and you missed it. You missed it. And that was the word that was coming out there. And Paul's like, friends, nope. Be of good cheer. Be at peace. That resurrection's still to come. It's still to come. You haven't missed it. Despite the, the rumor, the wind of doctrine that it swept in. When, okay, I'll be self-referential again. When I'm, in, when I'm in college, when Jesus is becoming real to me in a way that I really hadn't so far, you know, I start reading up widely, and I remember some, some book, I don't remember his name, it was called The Passover Plot. And it was all arguing for, yeah, Jesus, he didn't really die. You know that little sponge that they gave him? That was actually a profound sedative. It's 
called the swoon theory. They drugged him. They took him down, nursed him back to health, and then ta-da! And me and my sophomore mind going, oh my gosh, what if that's true? You and I have to kind of grow up in realizing and maturing as we consider things and read things and hear from others and bounce off our sophomore concerns and doubts and questions and raising those to one another and hearing more about it that at some point we realize, hmm, you know, interesting idea. I'll be curious about it to a point, but you know what? That doesn't really fit. And if the last three years have done anything for us or or had the opportunity to do for us is that we've learned to hear claims and go, okay, I hear that. I'm going to keep listening and remain curious. I'm going to let the sniff test be refined in me such that I don't jump and, again, fall for the bait and switch on everything I hear. Maturity in Jesus is learning to know how to listen, to take ideas and to consider them and reflect upon them and and learn how to know what's true and what isn't. That's one mark of maturity. The other is maybe the hardest thing we'll ever do as a church. Speaking the truth in love. The marriage of truth and love and what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. A lot of us in this room, we love to tell the truth. But somehow we didn't get the memo that whatever references to the truth I might bring up has to have love that motivates it. Oh, I'll tell you everything that's true, but I couldn't care less about you. That's dangerous. In some ways, it invalidates whatever truth you might be sharing. Others of us will think of love and therefore will deprive people of ever saying to them the truth, which is me here to mention to you and Paul to say to you that that's not really love. It's more likely cowardice in some way or self-protection in some way. I'm just loving them. I don't want to ever tell them the truth. Now, granted, to everything there is a season. There is a timeliness for every word. But don't confuse yourself and don't dupe yourself into thinking that the loving thing is always to deprive them or conceal from them what is true. Maturity weds those two together because that is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus. How do we ever get to that place of maturity? How do we ever find that gracefulness in the dance? Through the equipping of God's people who have been given gifts to notice those things in us and nurture those things in us and nudge those things in us for the sake of the body. And in the exercise of those gifts, to use them for the building up of this church. This, is, this might be two really bizarre analogies that I'm bringing here, but there was a study that I read last week, and I, I know for every conclusion you might have out there, you can always find a study to support yourself. It's like people sell stuff on want to study, five bucks, right? right? But there, there's a study last week that says one significant way to affect whatever depression or anxiety you face is to manifest kindness to someone else. Your efforts to build up this body in showing kindness to whatever it might be, that actually would be of benefit to you at the same time that it builds them up. In Zimbabwe, mental illness was on the rise, and those in the local public health community were trying to find ways that might have been make a really substantive, practical impact on those that were suffering from mental illness, depression, anxiety. And what did they come up with? What was one idea? They got a bunch of grandmas together. 
and they created these things called friendship benches. And grandma would come and sit there and talk to you and just, honey, tell me what's going on. And somehow in the midst of those very honest, raw, vulnerable conversations, something clicked. Something got through. Friends, those are just two pictures of what it means to help build up the church. Ways that are not very public. Ways that are very private in most cases. That's the way it works. I want to show you something from another film that you know that I think maybe encapsulates what does it mean to grow in gracefulness in the dance. And this is a scene from Dirty Dancing. What? No. No, 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 None of us knows how to dance. And the idea of dancing in the gospel is in some ways a little bit, uh, we're hesitant or we bring an apprehension to it. We don't know what it means to do that and we're, we're concerned about what happens if I fail. And the, the dance of the gospel is there to say, if only Jesus looked like Patrick Swayze, if we knew that, right? Um, it is if you must be invited in there, out there, to discover your feet in him. The one who looks at you and says, look at me, don't look down. Look at me. The church is inviting you into that. Such that if you fall off that log, Jesus will not look at you and go, thanks. Um, next. He is the one who looks, in you, looks on you with love and invites you to discover what it means to build up his church, to live in certain ways that reflect his grace. Um, many of you know that my my father-in-law suffered a, a massive stroke last week, and he is in the fight of his life. And I thank you for your prayers for him, and I would welcome you to continue to pray if you would. Think about it. Uh, but about a month ago, we were down at their home, and um, he found a Bible in one of his rental units that uh, was owned by a family in Illinois, and it turns out that they, they were alive during the Spanish flu, which... Uh, it was so-called Spanish flu, it actually started in an army barracks in Kansas. Hmm. But there were two documents um, folded in the Bible from around the 1920s. And, and both of them were from the, the pastor of the church that they had once um, been a member of. And I'm sorry that my reproduction of the first one is terrible, but um, he, he, he sends them greetings. He expresses to them both his and other members' Um, sense of regret that this family had left. He expressed thanks 
that they had found another church in Illinois and were now asking for a letter of transfer of membership. He, he speaks very candidly about the way in which the flu had taken many lives in that church and um, many in the vicinity and, and always welcomed them to come back and, and darken the doorstep of the community that they were once a part of. And then uh, the other document here is actually the, the, the church letter, the, the letter of transfer. And it reads, this is to certify that Mr. and Mrs. Ford Nysonger are members in full communion of the Owego United Evangelical Church of Weston Charge and the Illinois Conference and that at their own request are now hereby dismissed and affectionately commended to the Christian care and fellowship of the church of their own choice. Pastor J.M. Huff, um, the 28th day of October, 1918. Not good one year after date unless renewed. It's an expiration date. In other words, you don't act on this, we're going to need to talk. And I won't ask for a show of hands, and I would probably imagine that most of the people under the age of 20 in this room go, now that's weird. And I'm here to say, by virtue of the application of this passage, if you think that's weird, it's because I failed you in some way. Because what does this reflect? in some sort of sweet, poignant way, that the church mattered. If you have kids and you put them on an airplane and they're nine, you don't just sort of say, well, good luck. <laughs> Hope you make it. Maybe somebody will pick you up. You care. And this pastor in that moment was there to say, it matters that you're part of a community that reminds you of who the gospel is in which you can then invest your lives for the good of that body. That's not weird. That's Ephesians 4. I believe what this passage is inviting us to do is to believe that the church still matters. No matter your experience in churches before in which it has acted monstrously, and I don't deny that those experiences are real and prevalent. But I would also say to you that there is always one who is three that has never given up on the church, and that's the Trinity. There's a perennial discussion among Pastors and theologians and members is like, what is the church mainly? Is it a hospital or is it a gym? Is it a place to get healed like a hospital or is it a gym to kind of, you know, strengthen you and hedge you out? And the answer to that question is yes. But an even more helpful metaphor that takes both of those ideas into one and synthesizes them into one, it's this. You're a family. And though families are notorious for crippling the members therein, when they work, they prepare you. They bring healing to you. And they fit you for purpose. And that's what this body is. What does it mean to take it seriously? It is to believe that in your growth, in the church's growth, is your own. It is for you to believe that each one of you possesses gifts that are worthy of being nurtured and built into. And that you, pertain, you, you possess gifts that are unique to you, but also gifts that everyone shares, like the gift of existence, like the gift of life, like the gift of availability. Those are gifts we all share. And that's why there is absolutely no reason in the world why there shouldn't be slots filled in CM every week, because we're all existing. We're all available. We all have life and breath. And there's no reason... The Christian and Jill should miss three out of four Sundays in worship because they're trying to cover empty slots there. We all have gifts. 
that we all share and we all have gifts that are unique. And that's why it's always good to remind yourselves of who we are as a people that live for God's world, as God's family, in the joy of God's gospel, always giving a thought to what does it mean to be a communion of people who have convictions to be deepened, who have a community to build up, who are learning to have compassion for their vicinity, and who are growing in courage for what it means to walk by faith in public ways. It's why we're offering you all of these opportunities at being equipped. That's what it's for. The church in America has too often given you the impression that this is a show. We are for your entertainment. No. We are here to be equipped for works of service that build up the church and in so doing build us up too as it glorifies the Lord. I'll end on this note. C.S. Lewis meant much more when he talked about the happiness that we all want depends on entering into the dance. And he meant a lot more than just learning to love the church and build her up. But he didn't mean less than that. And neither should any of us. Let's pray.